Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Sabbath Keeping, Fasting, and My Own Flesh and Blood, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August 26, 2007. In early 2005, when I was in Ethiopia, I took a day trip to the mountains that surround the capital city of Addis Ababa. At the summit, our group prayed over the city, enjoyed the panoramic views, identified buildings in the distance below, and gasped for breath after walking uphill, uphill in the alpine air. That was the fun part. The disturbing part was our climb from the city center at 7,000 feet to the summit at 11,000 feet. As our minivan spewed clouds of light blue exhaust, the higher we went, the more women and girls we saw carrying loads of firewood back down the mountain. Barefoot and bent over at the waist, these women carried 75-pound bundles of eucalyptus saplings seven feet wide back down to the city center about 10 miles away, all for a few pennies. The women firewood carriers in Addis Ababa are a common sight, I later learned, so much so that you can read about them in books like the Lonely Planet guidebook. Since then, the firewood carriers of Addis Ababa have always reminded me of the crippled woman in Luke's Gospel. Luke is the only gospel to tell this story in chapter 13, 10 to 17. And it's the last time in his gospel that Jesus enters a synagogue in order to teach. He writes that the woman had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years, and as a consequence was, quote, bent over and could not straighten up at all, end quote. In Addis Ababa, I kept wishing that those women and girls who were bent over and could not straighten up at all could be freed from their bondage. Trying to make a medical diagnosis 2,000 years after the fact is futile. Maybe the woman in Luke had a form of scoliosis. Others speculate about some type of spinal ossification or fusion. Perhaps she had suffered an injury, or maybe she was just plain worn out from a lifetime of manual labor. Like the firewood carriers in Addis Ababa, I suspect that her condition reflected the complex interplay of causes and consequences. Medical infirmity, community indifference, social marginalization, economic subsistence, adverse gender roles, and religious blame. For example, don't complain. Your suffering is punishment for your sins. Whatever her condition, her prognosis was bleak. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. Luke, a physician by training, says that she was, quote, crippled by a spirit, end quote. Jesus describes her as bound by Satan for 18 long years. I can easily imagine myself a spiritual cripple 
if I had physically suffered like she had. The totality of her human degradation was greater than her medical ailment. And for those who dismiss that diagnosis as a pious and pre-scientific myth, I can only say that it's just the sort of thought you have when you see a barefoot 10-year-old girl beneath a 75-pound load of firewood trudging down the mountain like a farm animal. She's suffering a condition of spiritual darkness and bondage. She herself isn't evil, but her condition sure is. There's something there even worse than economic exploitation. Interestingly enough, neither Luke's nameless woman, her family, nor any of her friends asked Jesus to heal her. She probably didn't know Jesus, and maybe had never even heard of him. I imagine her going to the synagogue with her familiar routine of doing everything possible to avoid drawing attention to herself. No doubt she kept to herself and kept out of harm's way in the back of the synagogue where she wouldn't bother anyone. After 18 years of chronic disabilities, she knew her place. But Jesus didn't leave her to herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her to come forward. Watching her shuffle forward, her contorted body bent to the ground, must have felt like an excruciating eternity, like watching an accident in slow motion. I wonder what she felt and thought in the hushed silence with all those eyes on her. In front of the crowd, Jesus did something that I'm sure no one had done to her for a long, long time, and something that violated the gender taboos of the day. Luke says that he, quote, put his hands on her, end quote, and touched her. Then he said, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Freed from physical and spiritual bondage, she immediately straightened up and praised God. That miracle of divine healing provoked an outburst of religious hypocrisy. The ruler of the synagogue was indignant. Maybe he didn't like his neat and proper service upset. Maybe he had tried and failed to help this same woman in his own way. Or perhaps he felt upstaged by Jesus. Whatever ignited his anger, he cloaked his feelings in terms of religious zeal. Afraid to confront Jesus directly, he complained to the crowd that Jesus had violated the fourth commandment by working on the Sabbath. Couldn't the woman and Jesus have waited just one day when the Sabbath would be over? Come and be healed on those days, he raged, not on the Sabbath. Jesus exploded at this sanctimony, this human callousness, this theological hair-splitting. You hypocrites, he screamed. Human compassion, healing, and wholeness are far more important than religious ritual and misplaced zeal. Besides, said Jesus, their own rabbis had determined that brute beasts depended on them for a drink of water. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? asked Jesus. 
And so, if it's not only permissible, but necessary to water an animal on the Sabbath, quote, then must not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for eighteen long years, be set free on the Sabbath from what bound her? No, said Jesus, divine mercy would not wait one more day to heal a fellow human being. In the Old Testament lesson for this week, Isaiah teaches the same lesson about fasting that Luke does about Sabbath-keeping. Isaiah chapter 58 satirizes religious zealots who, quote, seem eager to know my ways. They ask me for just decisions, and they seem eager for God to come near them. Isaiah 58, verse 2. But in this case, appearances were deceiving. These believers fasted and prayed, but turned around and exploited their workers, quarreled and fought. Isaiah says that fasting is more than abstaining from food. It's not the absence of food, but the presence of justice. In those famous verses from Isaiah 58, 6 and 7, we read, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Abstaining from food profits nothing, says Isaiah, when we abstain from mercy and justice. When religious rituals like Sabbath-keeping and fasting, or if we fast-forward to our own day, Bible studies, sermons, church attendance, and retreats, when all these are divorced from human health and wholeness, whenever a believer, quote-unquote, turns away from your own flesh and blood, then our religion has gone very bad indeed. Conversely, though, when you care for your neighbor like you care for your own self, you fulfill the deepest purposes of all religious ritual. And now for further reflection. What have been your experiences of Sabbath-keeping and fasting? Number two, have you ever known a person with a severe and chronic medical condition? Number three, in what ways have religious rituals usurped compassion, justice, and mercy in your own life? Number four, do we still need religious rituals if we exercise compassion, justice, and mercy? Why or why not? And then finally, meditate upon the famous words of Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God.
For books this week, I've reviewed a book by Gore Vidal, Perpetual War for Perpetual Peace, How We Got to Be So Hated. New York, Thunder's Mouth Press, Nation Books, 2002, 160 pages. Is there a connection between Timothy McVeigh's 1995 bombing of the Mira Federal Building in Oklahoma City, which killed 168 people and is still the deadliest terrorist act in America except for 9-11? Secondly, the FBI's ambush of the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas that killed 82 people in 1993. And then thirdly, the Iraq War. Well, maybe. In this slender volume of occasional essays, the controversial writer Gore Vidal tries to connect those three dots. Vidal borrows the phrase perpetual war for perpetual peace from the American historian Charles Beard, who lived from 1874 to 1948. Charles Beard was famous for his outspoken criticisms of American interventionism abroad. To punctuate his point, Vidal includes a list from the Federation of American Scientists that identifies 201 instances of American military intervention between Pearl Harbor and September 11, 2001. In fact, this grossly underestimates military, American military incursions if Colin Murphy of Vanity Fair is right. He says that in any given year, American forces conduct 170 operations abroad. At any rate, the Iraq War that began in March 2003 was, sadly, only one more instance of preemptive and unilateral state violence by America, some of it against its own citizens. Whereas the press demonized Timothy McVeigh, Gore Vidal tries to understand him. Based upon his three-year correspondence with McVeigh, who invited him to be one of his five witnesses of his execution, although he couldn't attend, Vidal concludes that Oklahoma City was Timothy McVeigh's revenge for Waco. Without the latter, the former never would have happened. McVeigh clearly explained his motives in a letter to Vidal in which he quoted Justice Louis Brandeis in the Olmstead case of 1928, where the Supreme Court upheld the right of the federal government to wiretap telephone conversations and use them as evidence. Our government, wrote Brandeis in the dissenting opinion, is the potent, the omnipotent teacher. For good or ill, it teaches the whole people by its example. And so did Timothy McVeigh declare war on a government that he felt had declared war on its own people at Waco, Texas. Later, Vidal continues the Brandeis quote where Timothy McVeigh had left off. Brandeis continues, Crime is contagious. If the government becomes the lawbreaker, it breeds contempt for laws. It invites every man to become a law unto himself. In other words, lawless government invites anarchy. It will reap what it sows.
And so, in Gore Vidal's scenario, preemptive war in Iraq is one of the same piece as the FBI slaughtering Branch Davidian cultists. Quote, now with the revolt of the Praetorian Guard at the Pentagon, we're entering a new and dangerous phase, he writes. Although we regularly stigmatize other societies as rogue states, we ourselves have become the largest rogue of all. We honor no treaties. We spurn international courts. We strike unilaterally wherever we choose. We give orders to the United Nations but don't pay our dues. We complain of terrorism, yet our empire is now the greatest terrorist of all. We bomb, invade, subvert other states. Although we, the people of the United States, are the sole source of legitimate authority in this land, we are no longer represented in what we call the Congress Assembled. And so, according to Gore Vidal, private citizens like Timothy McVeigh follow the example of government atrocities in Waco and then later in Baghdad. Gore Vidal, Perpetual War for Perpetual Peace, from the year 2002. For films this week, I review Maxed Out, from the year 2006. Here's a good film about a very bad problem. In fact, it ought to be compulsory viewing before your kid leaves for college and signs a few credit card applications in the quad in exchange for a frisbee and, I might add, a future of credit card hell. In this film, one mother explained in tears that her kid had no job and 12 credit cards, each one maxed out with about $1,000 of debt. Sitting beside her, her friend recalls how she and her husband both worked 30 years ago but were denied credit cards. Adjustable rate mortgages, minimum monthly payments, zero down loans, no payments for a year, interest-free transfers, all these help explain why the average American has over $9,000 of credit card debt and will fork over $1,300 a year on interest alone. The national debt is about $9 trillion and increasing by more than a billion dollars per day. Your family's share of that, by the way, is about $100,000. To make its own minimum monthly payments, the government has raided Social Security reserves until those two vanished in 2005. Max Dell interviews all the actors in this fiscal nightmare. Congressional inquiries, gurus like Susie Orman and Dave Ramsey, common debtors, ruthless collectors, pawn shop brokers, and corporate executives who keep a straight face when they explain why the incredibly profitable and easy money they offer us is such a great thing. Maxed out from the year 2006. And finally this week, for poetry, we've posted a poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Gerard Manley Hopkins lived from 1844 to 1889. He was an English poet educated at Oxford. 
title of Hopkins's poem is As Kingfishers Catch Fire. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim in roundy wells, stones ring. Like each tucked stringed tells, each hung bell's bow swung fine's tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing in the same. Deals out that, being indoors, each one dwells. Selves goes itself. Myself it speaks in spells crying. What I do is me. For that I came. I say more. The just man justices. Keeps grace. That keeps all his goings graces. Acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is, Christ. For Christ plays in ten thousand places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes not his, to the Father through the feature of men's faces. Gerard Manley Hopkins, as Kingfishers Catch Fire. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August the 26th, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.